Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I am Marilyn Ritchie and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Jason and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussion. I am Marilyn Ritchie, and it is great to be back to host episode 11, our 12th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Jason Moore, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stoffer. We are excited to be back after a short break from recording. Jason, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, it's great to be back, Marilyn. It's good to see you. Um, uh, definitely working on papers. I feel like I've been editing student and postdoc papers nonstop for the last couple of weeks, which is a good a good sign. Everybody's being productive. Um, I've also been involved in several editorials. Um, I published an editorial on leadership roles for data science, which we're going to talk about um, a little bit later. Um, I also am working on a um, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion editorial uh, with a few co-authors and hope to get that submitted um, before the end of the year. Um, I had an editorial come out in Extreme Tech Magazine um, that on, on imagining uh, a job of the future where we might be hiring human assistants to our, um, our, our autonomous uh, AIs doing data analysis. Um, so that was kind of a fun editorial to write, and I'm glad that got published. And we just had one accepted that came out yesterday. Uh, that a student uh, and I wrote on uh, next generation Zoom. Uh, if you've used GatherTown or Minecraft or any of those kind of uh, tools for communication and gathering, um, you know, they take us sort of a, a step closer to the metaverse. So we had a, we had an editorial that just came out in Extreme Tech magazine on that as well. I participated in one of these National Science Foundation AI Institute grants. <clears throat> and um, so we got that submitted um, uh, about a week ago and uh, very happy to be part of that and hope it does well. I'm excited about the, the science we proposed. Um, that was the first NSF grant I've done in a couple of years. Um, so it's always a little bit of a mind, you know, shift, shift of, of, uh, shift of mind to, you know, kind of get, get into the framework of, of what NSF grants are about. They're a little different than NIH grants. Um, we've also, um, in the Institute for Biomedical Informatics, we, we've been planning to create some training videos on some of the clinical data resources and other software resources that we have available and really making a big push to get our community trained uh, so they can, um, understand the great resources we have, how to use them, and, and also with an eye towards self-service, getting people to the point where they can do some of this themselves, taking the burden off the health IT staff. 
I've also been doing a lot of teaching. Falls always, I always have a lot of lectures to give in the fall. I gave a lecture on bootstrapping for um, our genomics and computational biology uh, graduate students in, a, in, a, in their statistics course. Uh, I'm actually giving a lecture this afternoon on automated machine learning um, for our uh, machine learning class. And I gave a lecture last week on artificial intelligence for our Wharton School of Business and an undergraduate class on emerging technology. So busy teaching and, and I'm starting to get ready for the spring as well. I teach a course every year um, on special topics for biomedical informatics. So getting the, the, um, uh, the course agenda all set for that. I also gave a talk on artificial intelligence for the AI club at one of our local high schools. So I was really happy to see that they had an AI club and was thrilled to be able to, to talk to them and they had great questions. And um, so, you know, being able to interact with the, uh, the next generation AI folks is really, was really exciting. <clears throat> I also gave a, um, uh, a journal club on a machine learning uh, COVID-19 paper for the Harvard Department of Biomedical Informatics. And so it was fun to interact with Zach Kohani and his faculty and students. Uh, and I gave a talk on AI for the University of Washington uh, Department of Biomedical Informatics. Um, and of course, we attended AMIA, which um, was, uh, I think, went really well, considering it was virtual. And AMIA did a, did a great job. So kudos to AMIA, all the organizers, all the all the informaticians that participated in that. Um, and uh, I participated in a workshop on explainable AI that, that went really well. And finally, uh, we had Thanksgiving and, and um, I actually had two days off, which I think is the first real time off I've had since July, um, which is unfortunate, but you know, COVID is keeping us pretty busy, uh, those of us, especially in leadership positions. Um, so it was nice to have a little downtime, and I'm looking forward to the holiday break coming up uh, later this month. Um, so that's um, what I've been up to in a nutshell. Uh, Marilyn, what have you been up to? All right. Well, Jason, it's great to see you too. Uh, it, you know, I wish we were in the the studio in the Idea Factory doing this. Hopefully sometime in 2021, we'll get to go back in. Um, but yeah, things have been been pretty busy over the last month. Um, I had two students graduate in the last few weeks. They both finished, uh, defended their PhDs. And congratulations. Both, thank you. It's always bittersweet. You know, it's great to see them finish, but it's so sad. They're both already gone from the lab. Um, so Bing Lan Lee finished and she's now doing a postdoc at Stanford and Blair Zhang, uh, finished, and she is a scientist at Regeneron Genetic Center. So uh, both are often doing well. Yeah, it's so exciting. I, I, uh, I've enjoyed uh, getting to know uh, both of them um, over the last couple of years and their exciting research projects. And I, I just wanted to say that graduating PhD students is really the highlight of, I think, what we do. It, there's just almost nothing more exciting than finishing a student and seeing them go off and start their career. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It It's so emotional that day, um, watching them finish. And uh, both of them had me in tears doing their acknowledgements. They said such nice things about the lab and about me. And 
thank goodness my camera was off at that point. And I was like, so glad that we actually weren't in the room. You know, it, it was also very strange. It's the first time we've had virtual PhD defenses and not in the room together. Um, but I was just so proud and uh, it was just, yeah, so wonderful. Great way to end 2020. It's been a rough year. And so it was just <laughs> such a highlight to watch these amazing women go off to their the next stage of their careers. Um, what else? So in November, my lab had our first ever meeting free week. So we canceled all meetings. I uh, declined almost every other meeting. I think there were two or three that, you know, as having a role in leadership, there were just a couple of things I had to do. But instead of having, you know, 40 meetings a week, I think I had two that week. But the folks in my lab had no meetings. It was a time to just focus on reading, focus on writing, do some data cleaning, um, really just focus on work. And it was great. Uh, I've heard some folks in the genomic space doing this quarterly. And I thought, gosh, I, I'm not sure I could do that. But I decided to try it. And I loved it. So I was like, okay, we need to figure out like, I think we need to do this quarterly as well. It, it was just so productive to have time to focus. And I was able to really to think. I mean, it's so hard right now to find time to just think and innovate because you're just going from one meeting to the next. And it, it's almost like whack-a-mole. Like I've got to get be in this meeting and then get this thing done. And this is due. And here's this deadline. There's no time to think. And so that week I actually got to like sit with a cup of coffee and a blank notebook and think. And so it was great. Highly recommend it. Uh, what else? Just in the last uh, week or two, we had our genomics and computational biology retreat. And I was on the uh, planning committee for that. And I actually led and moderated a panel on wellness during COVID. And it was fantastic. So we had um, four panelists, uh, Sharon Milgram, who is the director of the um, OITE, which is, I think, the NIH Office of Intramural Training and Education. But since the pandemic started, they've been making all of their materials available to people outside of the NIH. And uh, we should put a link in the show notes to their resources. They're incredible. These YouTube videos that they provide, they have uh, webinars almost every week, and then they have small group sessions. They're wonderful. So she talked about some of those resources um, at the retreat. And it was really great. And Wendy Ingram, who is the founder of Dragonfly Mental Health, which is a nonprofit focused on mental health resources for uh, academics. So mostly for graduate students and postdocs and also their mentors. Uh, it was great to hear about these resources, you know, really focused on mental health for, um, for kind of the culture in academia. It, it's a, a challenging culture and there are a lot of mental health issues that arise that that we just don't talk about. So she presented some of those. And then two local experts. So Benoit Dubay, who's the chief wellness officer at Penn, and Lily Brown, who is a clinical psychologist, uh, talked a lot about different resources that are out locally at Penn, but then also just around the country for dealing with wellness. You know, academic culture has needed a, a shift and a pivot in wellness anyway. We, we kind of work ourselves to the bone. And I think COVID ha has only exacerbated that and it's just become much more forefront. So it was a great panel. 
I think it started some conversations uh, in the local community that I, I think are just needed in general. Um, it's it, it was just great. And so I think we can link to the, the resources that are public that we learned about um, in the show notes from this. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, AMIA. Um, it was a great conference. Uh, they did a wonderful job being virtual. And um, as we talked about the last time I was uh, elected as a fellow for ACME, and they did such a great job having a beautiful induction ceremony. Uh, each of the um, inductees had a video that our nominators made. And so thank you to, to you, Jason, you made my video. It was so, so nice. Um, it, you know, I didn't know how it would go having this, you know, award ceremony basically virtually, but they did a great job. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it, it was a lot of fun. They did a good job, but I, it's, it's really too bad. Uh, you were not inducted in person because those in-person ceremonies are really a lot of fun. And, and hopefully we can, we can, you'll get to enjoy it next year with the new, the new inductees. Yeah. But that's what they said. Uh, and several of us who were inducted at the same time, we have known each other, you know, for years and we were all sending each other little chat messages with, you know, emojis of champagne glasses, like next time we get together, you know, drinks are on me or we'll celebrate when we get together in 2021. <laughs> so we Lots of celebrating uh, promissory notes out there. Um, I've been giving some talks. So I gave a talk at the McGee Women's Research Institute retreat. So uh, McGee is a, a hospital and research institute in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, they had a retreat in collaboration with Penn State Behrend. I had said yes to this months and months and months ago, hoping that I'd get to go. You know, I grew up in Pittsburgh and the retreat was actually held in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is an area that I used to vacation at as a child. So I thought, oh my gosh, it'll be so fun to go see the lake in Erie. And, and of course it was virtual because of the pandemic, um, but it was still a great, great retreat. And I gave a talk at a virtual precision medicine leader summit um, the, the meeting was about pharmacogenomics, but my talk was actually more didactic. I was asked to give an introduction to machine learning for kind of the, the precision medicine community. And so it was a, a good lecture that, um, that now I have recorded so I could share with others um, because it was a virtual meeting. I had to pre-record the lecture. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reviews. So I did um, two special emphasis panels, study sections, uh, one for NHGRI, one that was on COVID. And then I also have had a lot of advisory panel meetings. I'm on advisory panels for different organizations. I have uh, two projects in, with Genome Canada that I'm on the external review for. Um, lots of committee meetings. It, it was kind of like everyone looked at the calendar and thought, oh my goodness, we haven't had all these things we were supposed to have in 2020. Let's do all of them in the month of November. And so there were just so many reviews and committee meetings. And so I, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm feeling meeting out. I'm glad we're almost at the holidays. Yeah, I think COVID has disrupted kind of our rhythm, our academic rhythm, you know, and, and everybody's been kind of thrown off. And I think, I think you're right. I think people at some point realize it's like, oh my God, we need to have an advisory committee meeting. You know, we, we haven't scheduled one yet for this year. And so yeah, there's a lot of last minute trying to get things done before the end of the year. Yep. Uh, and so related to that, I I have 
Like two last things to mention. So I'm working on a grant. It's a U54 grant. It's a, a, a data coordinating center or a data translation center grant that is due in January. And I was like, you know what? It means I'm gonna have to work some over the holidays, but it's fine. We're not traveling. You know, it's kind of a different holiday season anyway. But then realized that the university is closed from December 24th until January 6th. And the grant is due on the 8th, which means I really need to have it done before the 23rd. And so I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know if I can do that. So I'm frantically trying to pull this thing together over the next two weeks, while at the same time, it it is still the holidays. And, you know, I have two kids who they're teenagers. So it's not, um, not necessarily the same level of preparation that it is when you have toddlers, but, but I'm still mom. And there's all these expectations around, like, we need to bake the cookies. We need to buy and wrap the gifts. We do the Christmas cards. We have to watch the Christmas movies and go do some Christmas light activities. And, you know, we're trying to, to make it still feel like the holidays for the kids, even though it's, you know, a weird pandemic season. And so a lot of things are different. We're not going to all the parties we would normally go to and, you know, no brunch with Santa and all those things, but there's still all this stuff that that I want to do because I want to enjoy it and I want to make it special for my kids, but then also trying to get all of the year end things and now this grant done. So it just, it feels very hectic right now. Yeah, I totally agree. And as long as I live, I will never understand why the NIH gives us major grant deadlines right after January 1st, right after the holiday, forcing us to spend time away from our family to work on these grants. I can't tell you how many Christmas holiday breaks, December breaks I've had that I've spent working on big grants. CTSA grants, for example, are often due in early, you know, early January. And, and uh, Francis Collins is listening. That is just cruel and unusual to put grant deadlines right after January 1st. Please do not do that. Yeah, I agree. I actually reached out to the program staff for this RFA. And, you know, I just sat on study section, as I said, I I was on two study sections just last week. And so technically, according to NIH guidelines, I should have a two-week extension. However, this RFA, it doesn't say late applications won't be accepted. So this is a good, uh, we'll have to see how it ends up. But, you know, in general, for folks who uh, maybe you haven't done this much. The NIH allows a two-week extension if you sit on a study section, kind of within. Um, I think it's it's one month on either side of a due de- a due date. Um, and so, the issue is that this particular RFA expires on January 9th. And so, my question for the program staff is: Does that mean that they won't accept a late application? Or does that just mean this is a one-time RFA and they're not reissuing it? And and so I did reach out and I said, you know, normally I wouldn't even try to submit late. I just, I don't like doing it late because they can't guarantee that they'll accept them. And so I always try to do them on time. However, our grant, not only is the office closed, the software is shut down until the 6th. And so it's not even possible for my grant staff to work on it over the break for me. The the system that we use is off until the 6th. And so so we'll see what NIH says. I hope they get back to me and say, yes, that that study section two-week extension works because I feel like I need it. 
Yeah, absolutely. But, so anyway, that's what I've been up to and and that's what I will be up to for the next two weeks. <laughs> Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements in case you are listening to us for the first time. You can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org, and you can leave feedback by email at feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave fe- feedback on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at podcast, and on our Facebook uh, page as well. Um, Be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, That really helps improve the visibility of the podcast. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is leadership roles in data science, and Jason will introduce the topic. Thanks, Marilyn. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about for a couple years. Um, I've been in academia for more than 20 years now and have had several different leadership roles and have accumulated, I think, a a fair amount of knowledge uh, about uh, the kinds of things that academic leaders should be thinking about and doing in their their roles and um, in particular in data science. Um, And so I made a list and wrote it up and published it as an editorial um, in uh, our journal, Biodata Mining. And there will be a link in the show notes to to the paper. So I'll just run through um, the list uh, quickly, and and then Marilyn, we can have a, a a brief discussion about it. So the first thing I listed, and so these are roles. Um, uh, and so the first thing I think an academic leader in data science needs to be is a visionary. <clears throat> um, you know the. When you're leading a data science effort, you you need to establish a vision, and a vision is really about what does the future look like. Um, so you could ask yourself the question: Where is data science going over the next ten years? And that's important so that you can plan uh, to, for the next five to ten years. So you need to be thinking about what's coming down the road. What are the exciting things? What do I need to be prepared for? Um, and there are a whole host of issues in data science um, that, uh, you know, we could, we could project out into the future. You know, is deep learning still going to be a hot thing in five years or is the, the fad going to fade? And, uh, you know, and these are, these are important, uh, visions are important because they, they dictate the decisions that you make uh, along the road. So, for example, if deep learning is going out of fashion, do you really want to go out and hire five faculty uh, that are deep learning experts? So that's where the vision becomes important. So the second role is the executive. And once you've established an exciting vision uh, that people can get behind, then you lay out a plan to realize that vision and, uh, and the executive executes the plan. That's a big part of the job um, is making decisions. Uh, making decisions about who you're going to hire, what are you going to work on, what are your priorities going to be, um, you know, if you're going to establish an education program, what is that curriculum going to look like? Um, so the executive is the executive role is all about making decisions, executing the plan that is consistent with the vision that you've articulated. Number three on the list is the cheerleader. 
Uh, important part of a leadership job is to be able to motivate your faculty and your staff to work hard and be successful. Um, and again, that feeds into the vision, right? You want to create a vision that's exciting for your faculty and staff that they can get behind. Um, now, to be an effective cheerleader, of course, the cheerleading has to be genuine, it has to be honest, uh, and you have to be trusted in that cheerleading. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Number four is the manager role. Um, so you're going to hire a bunch of people, uh, administrative staff, faculty, etc., cetera, um, and you have to manage those people. Uh, and that can be challenging. And there are specific challenges around data science. Hiring data scientists is challenging just because they're hard to find. They get paid more in industry. Um, and so finding good data scientists can be a challenge. Um, and of course, now we're dealing with working from home. Um, and so, you know, a good manager needs to be able to navigate the work from home policies. How, how much are we going to allow our data science staff to work from home? And, um, and how do you manage somebody who's working remotely that can present some certain challenges? Number five is the enforcer role. Um, there are rules uh, that we have to follow. And this is sort of often the unpleasant part of the job is enforcing the rules. Um, but there are specific data science challenges that that come with being the enforcer. For example, we are entrusted with data. Those of us that work with clinical data in particular have to think about data security and data privacy. Um, and there are a lot of rules around that that have to be enforced. Um, so the, enforce, the enforcer aspect of the job is very important. Number six is the subordinate role. Ultimately, you work for somebody else. Um, uh, in my role as director of an institute, I answer to the dean of the medical school. Uh, the dean of the medical school answers to the provost and the provost to the president, the president to the board of trustees at a university. So uh, each of us has somebody we have to answer to and um, communicate with um, both our accomplishments and our needs. Uh, so the subordinate role is a very important one. Number seven is the educator role. Um, and uh, that's a big part of what we do in academia is educate students, educate our junior faculty. Um, and, you know, data science has particular education challenges. For example, where does data science education live? Does it live in a computer science department, a statistics department? Does it live in an informatics department? It sh should it be joint between all of those groups? Should you have one data science program or should every department or school have their own data science program? So there are a lot of issues, uh, I think, around data science education. What does the curriculum look like? Uh, so this is a, ver a very important role. Number eight is the entrepreneur role, um, which often involves fundraising. How are you gonna raise money to support all the great things you wanna do? Number nine is the mentor role, which is one of the most important roles. Uh, how do you help all of these people you've hired be successful and pass on the wisdom and knowledge that you've gained uh, that they need to navigate uh, you know, complex academic waters? And finally, number 10 is the communicator role. Uh, you have to build a positive data science reputation for your group on a national and international level. So that means getting out, um, communicating, traveling, meeting with people, talking about what you're doing, getting them, getting people outside your institution excited about 
your vision and the projects you're working on, the education programs you've developed, uh, the opportunities to, to work with your faculty. Um, so that's a, um, a very important role. And what I haven't mentioned is equity, diversity, and inclusion, which is incredibly important. And um, as I said earlier, I'm writing a separate editorial on that because I think it deserves its own editorial. And uh, once that's published, we can we can uh, cover that on the podcast as well. So Marilyn, do you have any thoughts about uh, this list? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, for describing this, Jason. I think... I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Those are all of the different roles that we have to play. And, you know, I remember at one point, um, this was back when I was on the faculty at Vanderbilt, um, a group of us got together and bought our center director, uh, who was Jonathan Haynes, who currently runs a department and institute at Case Western University. We bought him a set of hats, like actual baseball cap hats that had some of these names, the way you have them on the hats, because we were saying like, you know, Jonathan, I need to come in and talk to you, but right now I need you to put on the mentor hat <laughs> or right now I need you to put on the collaborator hat. Cause he did, you know, even within one conversation, sometimes you have to be visionary and mentor, or right now I, I need you to be my manager uh, or I need you to be the enforcer and help me like deal with this thing. And, and so we actually bought him a set of hats and he had them up on his desk. I don't know if you remember this uh, so that, you know, we could point, like, I need you to put that hat on now. I know that you're <laughs> tempted to put on the other hat, but I need that hat. <laughs> so I think that these are great. Uh, a couple of thoughts that I had um, related to them. I think one of the the challenges that we face is developing kind of internally our emotional intelligence to know which role we have to be at a certain time. As I said, you know, there are times that we would just say to Jonathan, like, I need you to be this. But sometimes within ourselves, we have to know when, based on the situation, does that person need me to be a cheerleader right now? Or do I really need to be their manager? Um, and and knowing and reading the situation and reading the person and kind of where they are mentally and emotionally to know what you need to do. Sometimes people will tell you, you know, I really need you to push me right now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with motivation and I need you to, to really push. Or sometimes you can just tell if you push, they're going to crumble. And so right now I need to, you know, be a mentor and I need to be a cheerleader and build them up so that you know they can get over whatever hurdle they're having. And so I think it it's important to kind of think through these roles and and decide, you know, in every situation, am I wearing one of these hats and which one is it or do I need to wear multiple hats? Um, and I think we need to be ready to change the hat like in a moment's notice and and pivot for what the situation is that we're in. Uh, I know I've had students ask me how do you go from meeting to meeting to meeting on very different topics? And it's not the topics that is a challenge, I think, as much as my role in the context of the meeting pivots. And so in this meeting, I am the mentor. And in this meeting, I have to go be an enforcer. And now in this meeting, I have to be the communicator. And you just, it's part of the job is kind of taking on the role that you need to in every conversation that you're in. 
Um, I think the other thing that I that comes to mind is that we also need to know which of the roles are hard for us. Um, some of them come naturally. So for me personally, mentor is the hat that feels most comfortable, that is the easiest. It's the one I enjoy the most. And if given the choice of what role I want to be in, it's mentor uh, all day long. Mentor or cheerleader. Those are definitely my preferences. Um, I think for me, being an enforcer is a challenge. Um, I don't like confrontation. And sometimes the enforcer has to confront hard issues and have difficult conversations. Um, I know other people who have no problem being the enforcer and being the cheerleader is like impossible. They just have a really hard time with that role. And so I think as a leader, it's important to go through these and think about which ones are easy for me and which ones are a challenge. And for the ones that are a challenge, those are the ones that we have to work on because all of these roles are important. And so um, if maybe you can just look through the list or read Jason's editorial and know for yourself, but if you're not sure, um, there are lots of uh, activities you can do. Uh, there's a, it's something called the DISC assessment um, that it, it's a way to um, assess your personality. Myers-Briggs is another one. The Enneagram is another one. Kind of knowing a little bit more about your personality can very much lines up with these different roles and um, it'll, it'll tell you which ones, you know, are your strengths and which are your challenges. And then from that, because you have to assume all of the roles, you have to find ways to develop and work on the ones that are a struggle for you. Uh, And the last thing, and I put these in the show notes uh, so that we can, can share them. People ask me all the time if I have book recommendations for you know, what can people read to work on leadership, especially a lot of students who know uh, and postdocs who know that they want to take on leadership roles in academia or industry when they're done, they're always asking for books to read. And so um, I thought about four that, that align well with this editorial. Um, Mindset by Carol Dweck, she talks a lot about a growth mindset. And it's this idea that um, if you struggle with certain things, so you know that being an enforcer is hard, or you know that being the entrepreneur is hard, you're really just not comfortable with fundraising and asking people for money and trying to you know, sell an idea and get resources, well, then that's where you need to focus on growth. And you don't just say like, oh, I'm not good at fundraising. Nope, I don't do that role. You have to become good at that role. And so that's where you have to grow. It's not that you're good at something and not good at something else you find those things that are challenging for you and that's where you focus your time to grow. Um, What Got You Here Won't Get You There by Marshall Goldsmith. Great book about how we have to always evolve as leaders. You know, what got us that first job as an assistant professor, it's different skills that you need to be a full professor. And it's a different set of skills that you need to be an institute director like you are now. And so this book talks about how you can't just say, well, I've developed and so now I'm done developing. You have to keep growing in your leadership skills. Um, Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. This one was great for me. As I said earlier, not good at enforcing. I hate those difficult conversations when you have to deliver bad news. This book talks through like, how do you deliver the bad news? Cause we have to do it as a leader. And then the last one is Presence by Amy Cuddy. Um, this one was actually recommended to me by Terry Klein at Stanford. She has all of her staff read this. Um, so it's not even just for leaders, but also for staff, but it's just kind of 
a better way to read yourself in challenging situations to learn how to get through them. And I think as a leader, we end up in challenging situations more often than, than before we were leaders. But uh, these resources might be helpful in kind of if you recognize that there are some of these that are challenging for you, they may help develop that skill set. Yeah, those are uh, <clears throat> great, great points, Marilyn. Uh, I agree with everything you've you've said, and you know, I think I think for aspiring leaders um, in data science or elsewhere, um, you know, I think an important thing to keep in mind is uh, you know, don't feel discouraged if you don't don't see yourself in all ten of these roles. Um, I don't think any one of us is good at all ten of these things, you know, as as you articulated uh, well, Marilyn. And so I think I think. Uh, you know, the point of this list is to say that this is, you know, these are the things that, um, you know, are required to do the job well. Uh, nobody has all these skills when they become a leader. Um, a lot of this is on the job training um, and, you know, learning, growing. You become better at each of these things through experience. Uh, you're going to be stronger at some things than others, and that's fine. Um but um, but it is on the job learning and and you become good at these things by actually doing the job. So that's important thing to keep in mind. And, you know, you shouldn't be the point of this list is not to scare any way anybody away from a leadership position, but just to try to say that these are the things you need to be thinking about. And these are the things that you will need to learn about in your role as a leader. My name is Phil Bourne. I am the Dean of Data Science and a Professor in Biomedical Engineering at the University of Virginia. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Enjoy. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Jason will get us started with the first item. Thanks, Marilyn. So many of you have probably seen the news that Google fired a prominent ethical AI researcher named Timnit Gebru uh, last week. And um, really what has become a very controversial matter for big tech, and and I would say for academia as well, but especially tech, um, there have been uh, a huge number of news articles about this. And uh, I provide a link here to one from Axios, which I thought provided a very succinct summary if you're just looking for kind of the bullet points uh, of this situation. And um, so I have a, a couple couple quotes uh, from their bullet points here I thought I would read that I think give a, give a nice summary of, of the situation. So Axios says um, first that uh, Gebru, a uh, leader in the field of AI ethics, wrote Google management with a list of concerns after the company insisted its name be taken off a paper that she and others had submitted for an industry conference. The paper they submitted explores problems with large-scale language processing, which is Google's foundational business. And Gebru said she'd leave Google if the company didn't address her concerns and Google told her it took that as an immediate resignation. So essentially she was fired. Separately, Gebru had also written an email that circulated widely within Google criticizing the company's record on diversity. Several thousand people 
from both inside Google and elsewhere have signed an open letter calling on Google to explain its actions and to commit to greater transparency. So Axios goes on to say that sources inside and outside of Google say her work in both ethics and diversity had ruffled feathers in some corners of the company, even as she maintained the support of both her manager and the broader team focused on AI ethics. Meredith Whitaker, who helped organize last year's Google employee walkout, said that Google's move sends a chilling message. And this is a quote from Meredith. When they felt she was pushing too hard on the issues she was hired to advocate for, they fired her. So why does this matter? Research from companies like Google uh, forms a considerable portion of the broader body of work on key topics like AI. And Gebru's case raises questions about the extent to which corporate research is shaped by corporate interests. So, Marilyn, I, I think this is, um, I, first of all, this, this is a very controversial topic. Um, it's a fascinating look into the culture of a big company like Google. And what I would say is that, you know, a lot of these companies are striving to do research and to be recognized essentially as uh, contributing to the scholarly literature. And so it's this, it's this interesting cultural shift at, you know, as the, um, you know, the, the desire to be recognized as a scholarly entity clashes with the corporate structure and the desire to make money. Um, and sometimes those two things butt heads with each other inside a company like Google. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. I think there's some diversity and, and you know, ethical issues here as well um, that, you know, she was hired to address. Um, and so that's kind of thrown into the mix as well. So anyway, a fascinating story. Keep your eye on it. Um, I think, um, you know, I it's unfortunate what happened to Gebru, um, but I think this is just sort of part of the uh, the the uh, bumpy evolution of scholarly work within companies. Yeah, what a story! It'll be interesting to to watch to see where this ends up. Uh, the next item, <clears throat> excuse me, is that JavaScript is twenty five years old. That is so hard to believe. Time really flies. Here's a description from its launch. So this was December 4th, 1995. Netscape Communications Corporation and Sun Microsystems Incorporated today announced JavaScript, an open cross-platform object, object scripting language for the creation and customization of applications on enterprise networks and the internet. The JavaScript language complements Java, Sun's industry-leading object-oriented cross-platform programming language. The initial version of JavaScript is available now as part of the beta version of Netscape Navigator 2.0, which is currently available for downloading from Netscape's website. Wow, Netscape, that is a throwback to the old days. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was a little surprised to see that JavaScript's 25 years old. It doesn't seem that old to me, but I, I guess it is. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an interesting language. Um, I think a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with JavaScript. Um, 
Okay, on to our next uh, news item. Uh, there was big news this last week um, from uh, the protein folding domain, uh, no pun intended. Uh, DeepMind's AlphaFold deep learning algorithm achieved exceptional performance on a wide range of different protein folding problems as part of the Critical Assessment of Protein Structure Prediction, or CASP, annual challenge or biannual challenge. Um, in the results of the 14th CASP assessment, AlphaFold achieved a median score on the global distance test of 92.4. This is uh, the global distance test or GDT is a way they measure the performance of the protein folding. And um, basically what it does is it, it measures how close the predicted amino acid positions are to the correct positions that have been experimentally determined. And uh, a score of 90 is considered competitive um, with experimental methods. And so the fact that a computer algorithm got to uh, a median performance of 92.4 is really unbelievably impressive. And this really created a big splash in uh, both the protein folding area and, and the deep learning machine learning area. Um, so what... DeepMind trained AlphaFold, the way they did this is they trained it on 170,000 known protein structures from a database. And what I really liked about this algorithm is that they took advantage of expert biological knowledge. They used evolutionarily related sequences in their algorithm, and they also used multiple sequence alignment to inform the modeling. And, and, and it sounded to me like the key to the success of this was representing the amino acids and their positions and relationships as a graph. And uh, so combining, you know, this graph structure way of representing the data along with biological expert knowledge and, and uh, all of that uh, in a deep learning algorithm is what allowed them to um, accomplish this major, this major feat. So um, this is a significant achievement. It's a real milestone in machine learning and AI and, and protein folding. And a, a question I have is, you know, does CASP need to continue? Um, are they going to continue holding the challenge after this? Because this this seems pretty darn good. And from here on out, it might be just, you know, small incremental improvements to this algorithm. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah. Who's going to want to write their, you know, thesis project on an algorithm to try to compete with this deep mind alpha fold? <laughs> I'm not sure any <laughs> student's going to want to do that. Um, and I'm really curious, I mean, I think this is fascinating and what else are we going to be able to use this deep mind algorithm for? I mean, it looks like it worked so well for this problem. I wonder what other problems with different expert knowledge and just a different kind of way to represent other data as this graph. I, I think, I don't know. I think we're going to see more of this algorithm. And, and what is the impact as well, right now, now that, uh, Alpha Fold can do this. What does this mean for drug development, or you know, uh, you know, developing antibodies for uh, you know to treat diseases like COVID? You know, what is what does this mean? What are the practical implications? I you know, time will tell. But it would be fun to sort of speculate about what the, what this means for those kinds of areas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next item, uh, we were surprised to learn that Slack was sold to Salesforce for $27 billion. Even though Slack has about 12 million users, it has not yet turned a profit. 
hard to believe in the year of all this remote everything that they've not yet turned a profit. Um, if you're not familiar with Salesforce, Wikipedia describes it as an American cloud-based software company headquartered in San Francisco, California. It provides customer relationship management or CRM service and also sells a complimentary suite of enterprise applications focused on customer service, marketing automation, analytics, and application development. It'll be very interesting to see where this goes. Uh, I have to say it was shocking. You know, it seems like Slack is just at the point of a, about to turn a profit or I, I, it's like I said, it's hard to believe they haven't this year. Yeah, maybe it doesn't matter now that it's part of Salesforce because it'll help Salesforce improve its profit margin, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, we use Slack a lot like a lot of people do. And uh, my piece of advice for Salesforce is don't mess it up. <laughs> yeah, please. It, it, it's the backbone for so much communication, especially in a time where we're remote working. Don't mess with Slack, please. Okay, on to our next uh, news item, which is a scary one. Some of you have been probably following the ransomware attacks on U.S. Uh, health systems over the last several months. And I, in particular, have been following the attack on the University of Vermont Medical Center since I used to live in Vermont and had an adjunct appointment at the University of Vermont. And uh, the university there um, recently restored its epic EHR after being down for about a month. Could you imagine having your health system not have access to its electronic health record for a month during a pandemic uh, or any time for that matter, but especially during a pandemic? <clears throat> so the University of Vermont uh, Medical Center had, had lost access for a month, finally got it back up. Um, and it's not perfect. They still have a lot of work to do to get the systems uh, running, get them communicating with each other. They had 5,000 desktop computers that were affected by this ransomware attack. So security is something we all need to take very seriously. Um, the hospital there at the University of Vermont um, hasn't said what the root cause of the successful attack was, but I know from our own health system um, that, uh, you know, we've been... Um, you know, locking, you know, locking down um, things like Gmail and, uh, you know, other, other sources of attacks like this. So anyway, we have some uh, links in the show notes here about the attack and uh, university's uh, response. Uh, pretty scary stuff. Uh, next, we recently read an article in Wired Magazine about companies building AI tools for assisting with video conference meetings like Zoom. Imagine a computer program which would keep a transcript of the meeting and derive the key points, ideas, and action items. Imagine an AI which could study facial expressions and determine who's excited or bored with an idea, and even who's paying attention and who's not. It might be useful for presenters who can't normally read the room when on a video chat. I know I would love that. You could get real-time feedback on how the presentation is going. Um, there are also AI companies developing software for optimizing the scheduling of meetings. Uh, more examples of how the practice of work is evolving. I think we've, we're learning a lot through the pandemic. And yeah, I think seeing some feedback on, on what's working and what's not in these virtual meetings, because I think we're only at the start of them. I think even once life goes back to, you know, the, the post-pandemic um, whatever that looks like, 
I expect there's still going to be remote work and virtual meetings and a lot of virtual conferences. So uh, I'm excited to see kind of what these AI companies can learn. You know, Marilyn, I, I, I'm an AI person and I get excited every time I see one of these, you know, AI advances or AI ideas that come out and, and you think, man, this could really make my life better, right? Could, you know, imagine an AI mining the text of your Zoom, your one hour Zoom call and then providing you not only a transcript, but an interpretation with action items. I mean, that would be a huge time saver. But every one of these AI things that we read about and get excited about comes, it's a double-edged sword. It comes with all these concerns and worries about privacy and big, you know, this sounds very big brotherish to me. I can't imagine that people would want an AI studying their facial expressions and reporting that back to their supervisor. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, nobody's going to want to do this. I don't know. What do no, you think? Everybody's, everybody's cameras will be off. Yeah. Um, well, and like you'll find out, you know, I guess it could watch your eye movements to know which people are actually looking at the person talking and which people are reading emails because you could see if they're reading, right? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> when I'm talking with people, like I'm not watching your eyeballs to see if you're reading or if you're focused on, you know, my picture, but an algorithm could probably watch that the eyes are shifting for reading. And so you'd get a note, you know, these three people were reading something else, not listening to you during your class. My my prediction is that this tool will likely get built, but nobody's going to want to turn it on. <laughs> okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna end the news today on a sad note. Um, I was very sad to learn of the passing of Dr. Alan Green uh, last month at the end of November. Uh, Alan served as chair of psychiatry at at Dartmouth uh, for 18 years and led their CTSA funded Synergy Center. Um, and I, I, uh, I've known Alan for a long time. He helped recruit me to Dartmouth when I was there and I worked closely with him and his faculty on a number of research projects. And, um, I also, uh, you know, helped him write the CTSA grant and the informatics component of that. Um, Alan was an amazing scientist, a brilliant scientist. Um, he always had a smile on his face. He was always upbeat and optimistic and pushing forward. And, you know, that's, that's sometimes rare for people with such big leadership responsibilities. He was an absolute pleasure to work with, an inspirational figure. Um, and I know he's going to be missed by many in the Dartmouth community and beyond. So rest in peace, Alan, and thank you uh, for everything you did for me. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending an email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, we will discuss a paper just published in Jamia, by Madhavan et al. titled Use of Electronic Health Records to Support a Public Health Response to the COVID-19 Pandemic in the United States, a perspective from, from 15 academic medical centers. Jason will introduce the paper. Thanks, Marilyn. So uh, this paper just came out um, about a week or two ago, 
and um, I uh, am actually a co-author on this paper. I, I didn't didn't write the paper, but um, I'm part of a a group of leaders in in the biomedical informatics space from around the country who have been on the front lines of dealing with the COVID nineteen pandemic and you know struggling to put all the EHR pieces together to respond to the pandemic. And um, so um, I uh, helped helped write this and we came up with um, a list of, of challenges and opportunities and recommendations. And so I just thought um, it'd be a good idea to review those since the EHR does uh, play such an important role um, in uh, both the delivery and analysis of data that's needed to address the pandemic. So this paper um, reviews some of the challenges we face in harnessing EHR data and also some of the opportunities. Uh, table one in the paper lists the benefits and challenges of um, the centralized um, disease-based registry approach and the federated approach of sharing data across uh, cl a clinical network. Um, and we discussed some of these um, advantages and disadvantages of the centralized versus uh, federated approach in the last episode. So an example of the benefits of a centralized registry, of course, is that the data are harmonized and centralized, making the resource um, easier to manage um, and you know, all the data is in one place. Um, and of course, the challenges of that, as we talked about in the last episode, include uh, data privacy because you're putting lots of, lots of data from different institutions together in one place. Um, which presents some additional institutional risks. Um, and, and also, all you have to do a lot of work to harmonize and normalize the data to, to make sure that when it is integrated that uh, you're dealing with all the same kinds of data. Now, um, uh, the federated approach, as we talked about last time, has a number of benefits. Um, First of all, um, the data are not restricted to just those with the disease. So when you're, you know, creating a, for example, a COVID-19 repository or registry, uh, you're just putting in patients that had COVID-19. You're not putting in all the other patients from your health system that had all kinds of other diseases or healthy individuals. Um, so, uh, so that's one of the benefits of a federated network is that you, you have access to your full data locally that includes, for example, healthy individuals or individuals with other disorders. Um, and so that would allow you, for example, if you wanna do a case control study to identify COVID-19 cases and uh, controls that were perhaps exposed but did not develop the COVID-19 disease. Uh, now, um, a challenge is uh, that you need uh, special statistical or machine learning methods to combine results across a federated network. Um, so you have to become familiar with those methods and they have their own strengths and limitations. So um, a nice resource provided by this paper is a, a partial list of COVID-19 data initiatives and that's provided in table two of the paper. So the authors went through and made a list of all the different COVID uh, data uh, sharing and federated data projects that they could think of um, and included those in the paper and uh, included in there, in there is the 4C consortium that we participate in and of course the Odyssey consortium. Both of those are examples of that take the federated approach. 
And N3C, as we've talked about before, is the uh, national effort in the United States uh, to centralize data from different health systems. Okay, so um, the paper ends with a call to action. And uh, the paper says, and I quote, it is time to start recognizing teamwork and investing in uh, sustainable solutions to modernize and connect public health and healthcare IT infrastructures, as well as framing roles for each member of the team to scale up local efforts. The United States inadequate response to the pandemic might be associated in part with inadequate, inadequate coordination of data from clinical settings. So, so I think what the paper is saying is that, um, you know, I, I think we can all agree our response to the pandemic was inadequate. Um, those of us in informatics were scrambling when the, as the pandemic was unfolding to get the data we needed, get the data that public health officials needed, um, integrate data so we could do analyses and understand the disease. Uh, it really put our, our health IT and informatics infrastructure and expertise to the test. Uh, we've learned a lot, um, but I think what this paper, the action items that come out of this paper are a direct result of that experience in on the being on the front lines of the pandemic. So uh, recommendations were made in several areas, including technology, governance and policy and strategy. Um, and I'm just going to read these. For technology, uh, the authors recommended uh, first, that we use as few common data models, standards, and analytic tools as possible. If everybody's using a different common data model and a different analytical tool, that makes collaborating much more difficult. Number two, explore ways to extend and enhance data interchange standards and interfaces to make it easier to exchange data. Number three, deploy technologies that help ethics boards monitor patient data quickly. For governance and policy, uh, we recommended to eliminate uh, systematic barriers across the data ecosystem. Uh, we recommended to enhance transparency into who has access to the data. So if you're aggregating data from a whole bunch of different health systems in one centralized place, then who has access to the data becomes a very important question because you're giving away control of your data to this centralized effort. Number three, uh, to... Uh, uh, we need creation of coordinating bodies spanning all different data providers. And number four, we need coordination of virtual harmonized clearinghouses for digital public health data and information at all levels of government uh, and our organizations. All right, finally, for strategy, uh, we recommended uh, to that we need to make hard decisions about how data are collected entered into the EHR and used for patient care and beyond for research, for example. Uh, we recommended to provide incentives to learn from successful health information exchanges, registries, and federated data networks. Uh, we recommended to engage all IT, informatics, public health, epidemiologic, and administrative communities for common understanding of the informatics issues and challenges. Number four, uh, to, we recommended to invest research dollars in novel integrative methods, tools, and technologies. Um, that's one I'm personally very interested in and think we need a lot more investment in. And number five, to establish the role of a population health director at each health provider organization to ensure that quality data um, are relayed to public health authorities uh, in a timely manner. So the paper concludes by saying, and I quote, we call all stakeholders to act now to build a coordinated system of data sharing to combat COVID-19 and to prepare for the inevitable next pandemic. 
successful implementation of the measures outlined in this article will enable evidence-based approaches to coordinate testing and contact tracing, predict ne uh, needed resources, and prepare accordingly so that non-essential healthcare services will not need to be shut down unnecessarily, conduct basic preventive or therapeutic research, and provide a trusted factual basis for answering public health questions of critical importance for this pandemic and other health conditions. Okay, so um, last thing I'll say is that I really liked figure two of this paper. And if you look at the figure, um, on the left side is listed uh, 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 some existing challenges that we've covered, things like lack of investment, uh, geographic and political divides, um, issues with data collection, integration, quality and delivery, those kinds of things. On the right-hand side of the figure is listed the pathways forward, the kinds of things, the action items that I mentioned, the things that we need to do to ex extend existing data infrastructure, to create regional data clearinghouses, training and education, et cetera. And then in the middle part of the figure, there are near-term priorities, um, such as data-driven response to emergencies like the pandemic, and then long-term priorities like data-driven response to chronic public health problems. And then in the middle of this figure is um, the digital public health ecosystem that we desperately need uh, in this country and elsewhere uh, in the world. So anyway, I, um, I think this is an important paper. Uh, I was very happy to participate uh, in it. Um, and I think the authors did a, did a great job uh, highlighting the challenges, the opportunities, laying out at least some some basic ideas of the kinds of things we need to do so we can be ready for the next pandemic and so we can address all the other health concerns that we talk about all the time. Marilyn, what did you think about this paper? Yeah, I agree. I thought that uh, the group did such a great job putting this paper together and it, it laid out a lot of the the really important um, challenges that we face and and a path forward, what we need to focus on so that you know, we are better prepared the next time that something like this happens. And one area in particular that that they mention, um, it, it's really in the, I guess, the, the epidemiologic and social determinants of health space, that that's information that's lacking in the EHR. And I think, especially with COVID-19, it it's information that we really needed. And we would have done a better job, I think, if we could have had the information about the individuals with COVID, you know, early on in the pandemic. And, and I feel like it's still a challenge. Understanding what role the kind of pre-existing conditions and medications that people are on and genetics play in both susceptibility, but also the variability and severity that we're seeing. And what role are, is it really the social determinants of health? Is it the type of job that people have, the, you know, who are essential workers and not, the access to healthcare, the um, living quarters, you know, how close, you know, people that live in apartment complexes with a lot of roommates, kind of in comparison with people who live in more, um, rural or suburban areas where they're more spread out. Some of that, that's those social determinants and behavioral and epidemiologic determinants, I think for COVID-19, the data are starting to look like play 
perhaps as large a role, if not, you know, equivalent to comorbidities and pre-existing conditions. And um, it struck me, there was a report in the National Academy of Medicine back in 2015, where they identified domains and measures specifically in social determinants of health that are important for health and disease and should be better captured in the EHR. And it occurred to me as I read this paper, like they said this five years ago, that we needed to do a better job in the EHR of capturing this information. And here we are five years later, we really needed that information and we still don't capture it well. And I don't necessarily have the answer. I, I think it is a challenge to capture that information. You know, some of it you could get from participant reported information or, or patient reports. You know, you could survey them, you could have them fill out some of the information. Some of it we could probably get. Um, and this is an area of research that we're currently working on in my lab to geocode where people live and then triangulate that with census data and other public health information to try to capture some of those measures. But that's imperfect. You know, people move. Do they have the right address? Even though you live in an area, your situation may not be the same as your neighbors. So there's some assumptions that, that are made there. Um, but that's an area that that I feel like we have got to start to get right because you know, mining the EHR is only going to work if the, the information that we need to, to build these models of public health, if the content's there. And if it's not there, which it's not, and it wasn't there in 2015 when this National Academy of Medicine committee did an assessment, you know, I think it, it really is on us as informaticians to figure out how do we get it there. We need that information. Yeah, I agree. That's so critically important. Uh, the socioeconomic factors and all the environmental factors as well. Um, I, I mean, I, I, air pollution, for example, must play a role in COVID nineteen severity. So, and which we don't we don't capture very well in the electronic health record. So, um, yeah, I agree. I think those are very important pieces. And and I you know and I think it's an it's important to remember that um, you know as we aggregate data through these these. Uh, collaborative efforts to create, you know, the, what the paper calls centralized registries. Um, you know, they're very limited looks at the data. Uh, these are not complete data dumps of everything we have, and they certainly don't include the things that you mentioned that, that are commonly left out of the HR. And so even though these, these big efforts to aggregate lots of data from around the country, around the world um, are important, and we need to do that to under, better understand COVID and look for trends and patterns across you know, thousands or millions of people, um, they they are a, a a very narrow slice of all the data that's available in in each EHR. Um, for example, genomics data. Um, an increasing number of EH, EHRs have genomics data, and that's not included in these these data aggregation efforts. So, um, so we have a lot of work to do, and. Um, uh, anyway, I, I I recommend reading this paper. Um, thinking about the strengths and weaknesses of what we've done as an informatics community, as a health IT community. And, you know, there are some very serious, I, I think COVID has revealed to us that uh, we have some very serious problems to solve um, on this front in a whole bunch of different areas. And it's not just technology, it's, it's uh, you know, governance and policy and uh, et cetera. So um, anyway, take a look and we'll have a, a link in the show notes to the paper. 
Hi everyone, my name is Brumar Mukherjee. I'm the professor and chair of biostatistics at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is training graduate students for non-academic jobs. This topic is based on a tweet we saw recently from John Holbein, uh, at John Holbein 1, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-B-E-I-N 1. And uh, this is his tweet, and I quote, if PhD programs are truly going to prepare students for non-academic jobs, they should, at a minimum, stop sending signals overtly or covertly that non-academic jobs are inferior. So I, uh, this tweet caught my eye. I think it just popped up in my feed and it caught my attention. And um, I thought it would make an interesting topic for our discussion. And so, you know, Marilyn, what do you, what do you think about this balance between preparing students for academic versus non-academic jobs and PhD training programs? Yeah, I thought this, this is an important issue. I'm glad we're talking about this. And um, it does seem like it's a challenge for many of us in academia, although I do feel like, and I guess I'm biased um, just with my own experience, it it feels like it is starting to get better, at least uh, certainly at Penn and in the genomics and computational biology program, which is uh, one of the programs that I'm training students in. But but I hear John's point, and, and so I think it it's worth kind of thinking through some of the issues and why it's a challenge. I guess the the first thought that I had is that I think the the largest part of PhD training is independent of what track you're going to end up in. So I don't think it's that we have to overhaul the entirety of the program. So um, as I kind of thought through, like, what are the things we teach a PhD student? So how to ask an important research question how to design experiments or studies or analyses, how to look at data critically, how to integrate your data with information and knowledge that exists in the literature, how to interpret your results, how to make inferences based on your results, how do you plan for the next steps in the project, how do you communicate your results effectively, both in written and oral form, and how to think critically. All of those things, whether you take a job in academia or industry, you have to be able to do those things. It, those are kind of the essential pieces of what we learn as a PhD. And so I don't think PhD programs would have to change any of that part. That we have to be able to do. Now, what types of written and oral communication we do differs. So in academia, we write papers and we write grants and we give talks and we give course lectures. In industry, sometimes they write papers. I know a lot of people in industry who still publish papers but a lot of what they write are reports that go to non-experts. So they have to take the results of the trial that they're working on or take the results of a set of experiments or analyses, and they have to go then to management and leadership who might be more business-minded and not as much scientists. And so the the writing that they have to do is sometimes more writing for a, a more general audience, or they have to write things that go in front of the FDA And they have to write things that go in front of Congress and that get picked up by the media. And so I think they have to do a a better job, perhaps, than academics do in um, 
and translating their findings and making them really clear and understandable. And especially if you're trying to keep your study afloat, you have to keep showing results that people understand and see as impactful. Um, so I think it's really the, the later parts of the academic training where it differs. So um, you need to be able to write proposals. And most of what we do in academia is teach trainees how to write a grant. And if you go into a non-academic job, you're never gonna write a grant. But um, recently I've had several of my trainees go into industry. And so I'm learning through their process they do have to write. So they are writing project proposals. If they, you know, they want to lead an effort about a particular project, or if they've been told this is the project, can you write up how we would do this? They have to write a proposal and a plan. And so it's shorter than an NIH or an NSF grant, but they still have to write the same kind of like, here are the goals of the study. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's what we expect here, what the challenges are going to be. Um, so I don't think that what we're doing with writing a grant isn't useful. Um, I actually find writing a grant is sometimes the best indicator for someone to decide, do they want a job in academia or do they want a job in industry? Because if they hate writing a grant, academia is not the job path for them. They've got to pick something different. And so I think having students write a grant is a great exercise especially if they're not sure which path they want. Um, another thing that's really different is the amount of creativity that, and control that you have about the next project you're gonna work on. So I learned this early on when I interviewed. So when I was finishing my PhD, I interviewed in academia and industry. And I learned in the interview process that if I went to industry, I would be told what the project is that I was gonna work on and what the next project would be. They're kind of given to you by leadership. And I was appalled at that idea at the time because I had so many ideas that I wanted to pursue. And so uh, I spent some time trying to figure out how do I give my students a chance to experience that before they're at the interview stage. And the way that I've done that is trying to get them to work on collaborative projects where they're, they're the analyst. They are playing the supporting role in the project and they are taking direction from a clinician or a bench scientist. And they're told like, this is the direction or this is what we wanna do. Can you do the analyses for this? I have seen students who love that. And those are the ones that go on into industry. They actually like being given this is the next thing that we want to work on, or this is the next thing that we want to do. Whereas others hate it. They don't want somebody telling them what to do. Well, then academia is the better path for them. And so I think in having that opportunity presented to students is important. Um, the one other thing that I thought of that's really different is that the schedule is so different. From what I hear from my industry colleagues, you know, their job is much more nine to five than what we are in academia unless they are up against an FDA deadline and then it's 24 seven, all things go. So that sounds very similar to when we're up against a grant deadline, that it's just 24 seven, you have the deadline and it has to be done. That's what they have um, with something like, you know, they have a report due to the FDA and they have 48 hours to work on it. And so those 48 hours, you don't work an eight hour day, those two days, you're working much, much longer. Um, I'm not really sure how we in academia um, give students a flavor for that other than if we started to say like, all right, I need you to write this paper and I need it in 48 hours, go. And like that, we're just not going to do that. Um, 
And so the best uh, two things that I've tried to do as a mentor, which I'm trying to think through how can our PhD program really push this, um, one is trying to find them opportunities for intern or externships. I feel like the best way to see if you would want that path and to, to start to learn what you would need for that path is to go there and try it for a while. So I had a student, so Blair Zhang that I talked about earlier, she did an, uh, an internship uh, her last summer of her PhD um, at a pharma and she loved it. And so she was on the fence about what path to go on and that gave her a really good opportunity. So the GCB program at Penn allows for that opportunity that you can take, kind of pause your stipend and kind of take a leave of absence, I guess is what it officially is to do an internship or an externship and try that experience out. And I know that our program has seen a lot of students go that route after trying it. And um, so that's one thing I think that PhD programs can do is to provide the, the infrastructure and the opportunity and make it known to students that they can do that. And then the other thing as either leaders of the program or certainly as PIs, it's making contact and building up your network of people that you know in industry you know, a huge part of uh, the career path for, for PhD students is who does your mentor know and who do their friends know? You know, a great person finishes and you send out their CV. And yes, sometimes they just apply to jobs that are posted on the web, but a lot of it is the network of people. And so if academics don't have that network in industry, it makes it hard then for the trainees to build out that network. And so that's something that I know, again, our PhD program tries to maintain certainly the connection with the alumni network, because many of them have gone on to industry, but then also for the faculty to have those networks. So the, my students or postdocs who have gone on to industry jobs, some of the time I've known people at that company, and other times uh, I've known someone who knows someone. And and then sometimes they do just apply and it works, but I feel like that is the, the harder path that to just have your resume and a stack of resumes. So I think as much as the program can do to have a network to build on, and I think an alumni network is a great way to do that and to stay engaged with your alumni and have those be individuals that you're kind of soon, uh, soon to be graduates or even mid-level PhD students can reach out to. Um, so I don't know, those were the things that I was thinking of. I do think part of it is, is on the program, but a large part of it is on mentors to just be open-minded and try to provide the infrastructure. I don't know, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree, Marilyn. And those are those are really great comments and, and ideas. And I, I guess I'm, I'm just a little shocked that this is still an issue in our PhD training programs. I mean, you know, when I was a PhD student in the middle of the 1990s, Bill Clinton was president. Uh, the the U.S. government was doubling the NIH budget. Uh, it was good. It was a good time to be in biomedical research because there was a lot more money available. The pay lines were for grants were going up, and a lot more grants were getting funded. So I got my first faculty position at Vanderbilt at a time when the NIH budget was doubling and Vanderbilt decided, hey, we're, you know, if the NIH is gonna double the budget, then we're gonna double the number of faculty. And so they started hiring faculty like crazy, building buildings, uh, getting, you know, expanding their research programs to take advantage of all the additional research money. And a lot of other uh, academic medical centers and universities around the country did, did the same thing. And then um, 
And then, of course, the Bush administration uh, came in and put an end to that and and flatlined the NIH budget, which for uh, for the entire entirety of the Bush presidency, the NIH budget essentially went down every year because of cost because of cost of living increases. Um, and then when Obama became president, if you remember, um, we had the uh, the financial downturn um, and. You know, so that didn't allow us to increase the NIH budget. And we had the sequestration, if you remember that. And anyway, the point is that um, we've, we've been under difficult financial strain in science for many, many years, um, going back to early in my career. Um, and so, you know, there was talk of diversifying opportunities, job opportunities for students, recognizing that not all of our PhD students were going to be able to get academic positions. And many of them would have to go into industry or uh, government work or other, you know, other, other types of, of work. And, and, and so there was a cultural shift at that time that, um, you know, recognizing that we needed to diversify the training opportunities for our students and embrace alternative career paths for them. So I guess that's why I'm a little surprised that we're still talking about this. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not a, not a real issue. I mean, I think John is 100% correct. Um, I, I, I'm sure it is an issue. Um, I think there definitely is a bias among university professors that they want their students to go into academia. Um, I, I guess I'm just surprised that we haven't overcome that yet and that university professors haven't come around to the idea that we need to train students to go into a diversity of different careers. And the truth is, um, you know, we, we need our students to have an impact in, in different parts of society, not just, not just academic-based re research. So I don't know, I, I come at this from sort of a, <laughs> when I, I guess that's why that tweet resonated with me was because I was like, wait a minute, this is still an issue? Why is this still an issue? How come we haven't moved beyond this and we owe it to our students to move beyond it? Well, and we owe it to ourselves. I mean, there are only so many faculty lines in the country, right? So there is a finite number of professor track, assistant associate, full professor track positions that exist. It's not as though, you know, it, so I, I was just working on a bio sketch for a, a T32 yesterday. I have trained 20 uh, students. Wow. And so if 20 students all went into tenure track positions, over the last 20 years that, you know, or six, 17 years, I've been a professor. Like if all of us, so if each one of us trains, you know, 15, 20 students, there aren't enough jobs. Like it, we don't have an exponential increase in the number of jobs. So either they have to go into other paths or we all have to be prepared to give up our jobs so that our students can have our spot. And I, I mean, I'm only one, you're only one. So if we give up our spot, one of our students takes our spot. I mean, you've probably trained 20 as well. So we can't, they can't, they cannot all follow in our footsteps. And so I agree with you. It, it is shocking that it's still an issue. And, and I guess in, in my little bubble of the world, it's not. So as I go through those students, many of them are in industry. Some of them are in government. Some of them are in health systems and some of them are at pharma or biotech. And so it, I've always been training students for both, but it, 
it's clear from that tweet that not everyone thinks the way that I do. Yeah, I have as well. And I've definitely seen a trend over the last 10 years. I would say about half of my students and postdocs have gone into industry positions of various types uh, and non-academia. Um, and I think by choice, not not just because there aren't jobs out there, but because that's what they were really motivated to do. And and um, so I've, I've certainly embraced uh, that idea for a long time, as you have, Marilyn. And um, hopefully, uh, hopefully our, our colleagues, um, can as well. And, and, uh, I've always, I've always been of the frame of mind that we need to bend over backwards to help our students be successful, no matter what they want to do. And that should be the attitude of everybody, uh, training students. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Marilyn, any closing remarks? Yeah. Uh, well, this was great. I had a lot of fun doing this episode with you today. I guess the what I would close with is, uh, you know, we're at the end of 2020. Um, it's been a, a really unique and challenging year for many of us in a lot of different ways. It's been incredibly busy for the informatics community. I think between the work that we're doing related to COVID and the ability to work from home, quote unquote, seamlessly, uh, or at least that's certainly what our wet lab colleagues think you know, we can work from anywhere. And so we can just keep on keeping on and we kind of have, but, but it's, it's different and it's more challenging. Um, I think this is a good time of year. And I certainly, this is part of my plans for over the, the holiday break. Uh, I think Penn is closed for about two weeks. And so we'll have kind of many days of, of rest and uh, rejuvenation for, for starting the new year. But what I want to spend some time doing, and I would encur encourage others to this do the same is to spend some time reflecting on what worked well and what didn't work well during this year. And I don't mean necessarily the pandemic specifically, but you know, we've all been working from home or many of us have been working from home or, or a hybrid model of part home and part at work, you know, what worked and what didn't, and can we make some changes either in our daily schedule or in when we're scheduling meetings or in the boundaries that we're putting around the work hours and the, the home hours. Um, I think, you know, each of us have, have made different choices over the course of the year, but 2021, it, I, I think everybody knows this, but I'll say it just in case, like January 1st of 2021, we're not going to flip a switch and like, and now we're back to what it was like on January 1st of 2020. Like we are still going to be in the throes of the pandemic. Um, we're in a COVID surge right now. And it's hard to imagine that, uh, three weeks from now will look much different. Um, you know, the weather has changed. It now the vaccine or one of the first vaccines is likely to be released in the U.S. soon. But again, it, the distribution is going to take months, and so I think we all need to be ready that at least the first half of 2021 probably isn't going to look too different from how it looks now. And so, you know, how do you want to schedule your work day or schedule your work week? And I'm certainly spending time thinking about kind of how to do a better job of, of having time to work, you know, act, active reading and writing and looking at data at the times of the day when I'm most um, alert and impactful and scheduling my meetings at times when, you know, I'm, it's not really a good time for me to be reading because it's, you know, for me later in the day, I'm better off having meetings. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what, what are my goals for next year? And 
And when things do get back to quote unquote normal, whatever normal is. So when we're, the pandemic is behind us, which, you know, once people are vaccinated and we can start to go about, you know, in public again, what parts of normal do I want to get back to? And one of the big things for me has been travel. You know, I miss travel, but I don't miss the amount of travel that I was doing before. And so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, as we are allowed to travel again, what will I allow myself to do? I, I think I'm going to say no to a lot more things that I think can be done remotely. We've learned this year. We don't actually all have to be in a room to review grants. We don't actually have to all be in a, ro a room to give advice to a center or an institute. Some of those we could continue to do remote. So I definitely am, am going to think through what parts of normal I want to rush back to and what parts of normal aren't going to be normal for me anymore. And that I'm going to embrace what I've learned in this time at home and time working remote. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying working from home. I don't want to do it five days a week forever, but I'm going to work from home more from now on. I think once we're back to normal, I'd like to be home, you know, two or three days a week to, to work. And I don't mean the weekend. I mean, weekdays work from home two or three days a week. So I don't know. I would encourage people as this year ends and we, we transition into the next one to just spend some time thinking about kind of what you want it to look like and how can you structure your time so that you get that. I don't know, Jason, what about you? Any closing remarks? Yeah, I, um, you know, Marilyn, I, just in response to what, what you said, um, you know, I've been, I, I've been catching myself saying, get, get back to normal. And, you know, it, we're going to have to create a new normal when we, when we go back, everything's going to be different. The, you know, our, our, I don't know, it, it just is. And so we have to get used to a new normal, whatever that is, whatever that looks like. And it'll require some adaptation, um, some adjustments, um, you know, for example, not flying as much. I've been thinking the exact same thing that I might not probably will not fly as much. Um, and probably will not drive to work as much. I'll be working from home two or three days a week, maybe even as much as four days a week if I can get away with it. Because I also enjoy working from home and don't miss the commute, uh, the fifth my fifty minute each way commute to work. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's going to be a new normal, and we'll have to figure out what that is and adapt to that new normal. Things are not going to be like they were before, that's for sure, and we have to kind of get that in our head that it's not going to be the same. Um, so I wanted to end the podcast on a positive note and a negative note. So I have one of each. And uh, my positive is, of course, Marilyn, as you said, um, we have vaccines coming and I'm very excited about that. And I think for the first time in a long time, I'm feeling optimistic about the future. Um, it's been hard to feel optimistic this year, but you know, we had a very impactful presidential election in the United States. And I think I feel optimistic about that. Um, and I feel optimistic about the vaccines coming and it's exciting to think about getting vaccinated with a vaccine that's 95% effective and is going to keep people out of the hospital. Uh, uh, so that's, uh, that's very exciting. So that's my positive note. And I am, and I am genuinely feeling optimistic because of the, for those reasons. Um, uh, I want to also have just touch on a, a, a little bit of a more negative subject. And I hate to end the podcast this way, but it's been on my mind the last few days. So I thought I'd mention it. Um, I saw a tweet and this is about a week ago and it's a tweet from um, Oded uh, Rachavi, 
who's a professor at Tel Aviv University, and he, he had a tweet uh, that I saw about publishing, and he was, he was saying, um, you know, that he, he was basically speculating about a day when, you know, we, we abandon the, the peer review system and we put our science out there and, you know, and, and, and the paper gets basically reviewed by everybody, you know, basically online. Uh, I mean, that's the great thing about archive, right? Is you put a paper out there, people can read it and comment on it, give feedback and you improve the work, improve the paper and eventually you submit it for publication. But what if that's how we publish? What if everything's like archive? So it's an interesting idea to think about. And there was a, there was a whole big discussion about this on Twitter and I'm not gonna go through all of it, but um, you know, Mike Eisen, who is one of the founders of the PLOS uh, journals and a, and a champion of, of open science and open access, uh, publishing, um, you know, uh, he says, you know, this has been the goal all along that, you know, we have this continuous evaluation of papers throughout their useful lifetime. And, you know, that that's, that's kind of the process, but the, the more negative, so I, so I like this and I think it's a, a very useful discussion to have. And I think publishing is evolving and, and may change. We may abandon the peer, the form, at least the formal peer review system that we have now, which is very profit driven, right? Journals are making money on, on us as reviewers and making money on our papers. Um, so we, we may, uh, we may, but, but just to, you know, the, the negative aspect of this is that um, our, our friend Atul Butte had a tweet in response uh, to this thread. And he says, but don't so many scientists already seem to hate each other on Twitter. Science tribes form and fight so quickly. Um, so, and he's basically calling into question, how realistic is it that we can expect scientific work in the open community to get fairly and um, honestly evaluated without the hate that we off very often see on social media. And this got me kind of thinking about, uh, you know, how, how scientists treat each other and how, you know, there are an alarming number of scientists who treat each other very poorly. And I, I responded to this thread and I tweeted, I'm always amazed at how poorly scientists treat other scientists. Twitter brings this behavior to the surface for all to see. And so that's my negative note for the day is just, and maybe we can have a more in-depth discussion about this in a future podcast, Marilyn, that uh, might make a good discussion topic is just why, why, do, why do we have so many examples of scientists treating other scientists so poorly when our main objective is to promote science and promote research and promote knowledge discovery, we sh you know we should be all working together. And why do we why do we why do we fight so much and hate so much? Uh, you know, maybe I mean the answer to that, of course, is it's just human human nature, right? <laughs> um, okay. But I don't know. Science, you know, maybe it's um, too idealistic to you know to expect science to rise above that some somehow but um anyway so that's my negative note for the day something i've been thinking about is why there's so much hate and uh in you know fighting in science over over things that if we were having a much more constructive conversation it would be much better for science in the end goal that many of us share mm -hmm. no that's a good point and maybe one of the ways to uh to address that is to start to figure out how we get away from the, um, what is it called? The scarcity mindset. I think that's what drives that. People are so competitive and it's as though if, if you do well, if your paper does well, then mine can't. 
And therefore I will criticize you and criticize your work so that mine has a chance. And that's the wrong mindset to have it. I certainly try within myself and within the people in my group to, to not worry about being scooped. Don't worry about the great work that somebody else did. Like we're in an abundance of space, of data, of success. We can all be successful. And the reality is that if you publish something great, the re- what is likely to happen is that someone else will see that and go, oh, wow. Oh, you know what? I could build on that and now go one better to which you should respond. This is awesome. Like my work excelled their work, which will then excel someone else's work. I think you're right. What we're trying to do is in science is move the field forward, not move our own career forward. If we focus on moving the science forward and being impactful for public health and for you know, the field of medicine and the field of biology and all of these kind of disciplines that we work in, our careers just, of course, they they improve and get better. And our, our kind of our success will be because of the success of moving the field. So maybe that's, it's the mindset shift of there's plenty to be learned. And what we have to do is focus on moving our fields forward not moving ourselves forward. If our field moves forward, we are on the coattails riding with it. Yeah, it's a complex issue. And I think there are a lot of answers to this question of why science scientists behave badly toward each other. And, you know, it, it has to do with personalities. It has to do with the pressures put on us by the system that we work in. And it has to do with, you know, limited grant funding, um, all those things. So anyway, might might make a rich discussion topic for the future. All right, that is it for today. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find some time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.